Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, women in surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. So today we have the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Janavi Srinivasan, an Emory General Surgeon. She earned both her undergraduate and medical degrees at Northwestern in Chicago before coming to Emory for her general surgery residency. Uh, she is currently an associate professor of surgery in GI and general surgery at Emory, as well as being the surgical director of the Emory Crohn's and Colitis Center and is a part of the Emory Bariatric Center and Endosurgery Unit. She is also the chair of the Surgical Education Committee and is the Associate Program Director for the General Surgery Residency at Emory. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks um, for having me. First, let's just start about where you're from, a little bit about how you decided to become a doctor, your journey to where you are right now. I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. My dad, what, he's now retired, but he was a mathematician. And my parents moved to El Paso because it was the first place after my dad got his PhD in math. Um, for a university, and it turned out it's a desert, so it's a lot like South India, so <laughs> they were happy to live there. And actually, no one in my family, until the point I went into medical school, was medical. So not a lot of medical influences, but I think growing up, my parents liked to tell stories about how it seemed like a thing I was naturally interested in. So when I applied for college, I was actually in the BAMD program at Northwestern, so that's a combo program, uh -huh. so I got into medical school out of high school. Um, but I hit it a lot in undergrad because we were pariahs at Northwestern, sort of. People didn't really want to admit that they were the kind of geeks that would get in medical school out of high school. At the age of 18. Right. Um, and then when I went, you know, I was really interested in neurosciences. My undergrad focus was on neuroscience. So originally um, was accepted to neurosurgery residency at Emory. And after I did two years, I don't, you know, my time at Northwestern as a medical student, I don't think I gave general surgery much of a chance. And then when I came down for residency here, our intern year was very heavily general surgery back at that time. Um, and I realized I didn't really give general surgery a shot and really loved my intern year here, um, but decided I needed to give neurosurgery a chance. Did my second year, didn't really love it the way I thought I would for a myriad of reasons, nothing of which had to do with the department. They were really wonderful. Um, and Dr. Dotson took me back into the general surgery program. And if you think about it, you know, you, you both are people who are going through the process or have gone through the process. You make a determination about what you're going to do the rest of your life based off a very small window of opportunity. And so I never really got a chance to truly take care of general surgery patients, to truly see the breadth of what it was general surgeons did. On the other hand, I did a lot of research in medical school on glioblastoma, really thought I wanted to be a brain tumor doctor, didn't realize how emotionally devastating that can be um, until I was actually doing it and also that I didn't really love microsurgery. So you kind of have to, when you yeah. put that much time into what you do, you should really love the technical thing you do as well. And I realized as a resident that I actually really loved laparoscopic surgery. And that kind of, I grew to love that more and more the more senior I grew in residency, and, but realized after my, my second year in, in neurosurgery that I was missing some of the technical aspects of general surgery a little more. Was it hard for you to make that decision to switch? It was for a couple of reasons. I think one, my sister is literally a rocket scientist, so for very superficial reasons. <laughs> my parents used to be able to say they had a daughter who was a rocket scientist and a daughter who was a neurosurgeon. My brother's a physicist. That's really dumb. That's not why it was really hard for me. I think the thing that was actually really tough was that you spend so much time planning what your career is going to be. I'd done a ton of research in this. I had sort of a concept of what I wanted to be. The neurosurgery program here was great. I loved my co-residents. The faculty were wonderful to me. They were pretty disappointed when I left. I was the first woman who'd been in the program for seven years. And so part of them felt like it was gonna look, you know, look bad for them that you know, here's a woman leaving after a long period of time. 
uh, one of the residents who got accepted right after me was female, and they've had a series of female residents since that time. But I felt like I was disappointing a lot of people. Was it easy to find new research interests transitioning into a pretty new field for you, or did it feel just like a natural fit? I think it actually initially, as a, as a trainee, it was a little bit difficult because I knew automatically neurosurgery, the science of what I was interested in. Um, it didn't happen to match the technical aspects of what I was interested in. And, and the more time I spent doing complex GI and learning more about inflammatory bowel disease, I think the clearer that became to me. And with how active you've been in the academic community, uh, how was your, or what was your decision process with adding on some involvement in education, whether that was surgical education or taking on mentees that were medical students? How was that transition? So I, I, would, I think one of the things that really inherently appealed to me about surgery and surgical specialties when I was a medical student was that in some ways it really reminded me just of the overall educational environment and the consistency that exists in continuing education. So, you know, I really, really look up to my dad um, quite a bit. He's really a brilliant mathematician, was a great, great um, teacher. And automatically when I became a resident, one of the things I really enjoyed about residency was this idea that more senior residents teach medical students, the people junior to them. So I knew as a trainee that I wanted to continue in an environment where I was training. And so I wanted to base my career in education. And at that time, surgical education wasn't particularly sexy. You know, obviously in the last five or six years, that's actually become a really big thing. Just like global surgery happens to have become a really big thing, there are ways of all these kinds of things. Um, so I knew, you know, coming back that, you know, at the time we finished, simulation wasn't a big part of surgery yet. We didn't have a simulation program here to speak of. Um, so I knew if I came on and I needed to figure out a way to contribute, that would be a good way to do it. How did you go about that? Because in, in the past five years, our simulation program here has really exponentially grown. Um, was it hard to start that up? How did you get the funds for it? Was there support for it? So initially, I was like a poor kindergarten teacher in a disenfranchised school district. <laughs> I literally went to Michael's and I would buy like little square boxes and make pretend abdomens out of them and stuff them with different colors of foam so that junior residents could teach how to do Hassan. This was before you were a resident. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like a lot of that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, but over time we were able to come up, you know, a lot of the concepts that we came up with were things that I knew I wanted when I was a resident that we didn't exactly have. So one of the way, things that I felt was deficient in the program as I finished was that you'd come out being a fantastic open surgeon, but the emphasis on being able to do everything laparoscopically, even though you knew you needed it in modern surgery, we just didn't do enough of that. Um, so when I came on, I was able to approach industry and through educational grants, we were able to get box trainers for the residents. So those were the things that we started off doing, the stuff I could get for free. Um, and then as we proved the residents thrived with that and that they actually wanted more of it, and as it became clear that trainees really wanted that in the program, it became sexy to offer a real simulation program, and then funding followed. And you touched on global surgery a little bit. You're very involved in the Emory Haiti Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit about how that project started, how your involvement in it started, and how you've seen it grow over the past, you know, almost decade? Sure. Um, so this is like a lot of things in my career, complete happenstance. So um, I don't know that I never, I ever actually explicitly considered having a career in global surgery per se. But then the earthquake happened in 2010. Um, the project that Emory had at that time was known as Emory Medisher. Um, and a small group of medical students had actually approached Barrage Master 
and urology to address the burden of urologic disease in Haiti. And Jana McLeod, who was a trauma surgeon at Grady at that time, was going down as his co-surgeon. And she's actually um, someone who moved permanently to Africa to do global surgery work. She's got quite a robust career in international global surgery. Um, so when she left, there was a little bit of a, a void in the program, and so they were looking for sort of uh, the kind of surgeon who would be comfortable doing a little bit of everything, which is true a lot of the general surgeons at Emory, but my name came up, and so they approached me, and I said, sure, I'd give it a shot. Uh, and then after giving it a shot, really enjoyed myself. I think then I was relatively early in my career, and so the aspect of it that challenged my abilities to work in an under-resourced setting was appealing. You like the idea that you can roll with the punches, and... So many trainees like working at Grady because they feel like they they have to use their ingenuity and their wits to figure out how to deliver good care in a low-resource setting. Same thing happens when you do global surgery. Um, as you get older, you realize that there has to be more to it than just that. It's not just about you and the high that you get doing it a year in a row. Um, so I tell most people, if you actually do global work or rural health work with any consistency, they're probably more lows than highs. You shouldn't be getting gratified. If you're getting gratified, you're probably not doing it hard enough or right enough. Because there are so many problems that you have to address. Um, that, you know, I, I just think I'm not the kind of person who makes a commitment to something and decides that's not fun anymore, so we're not going to do it. I mean, it's been great in many ways. I think, you, you know, it's taught me a lot about my colleagues and what they're capable of. And most of all, it's made me, you know, continuously hopeful for the next generation. I think the medical students who do this are really the best we have to offer. They're pretty impressive people. We are really lucky in that we have a lot of really talented ancillary staff at Emory who are patient origin. So they're the preferred people we take down on the trip with us. There are critical care nurses, both at Emory and Grady, who are able to act in a teaching capacity down there because they can directly communicate. And one of the things they continuously tell us is that the patients would really love it if all the people down there could speak to them in their native tongue without the barrier of a translator. So you do recognize how scary it is to not actually be able to talk to people um, in a really direct means of communication. So, you know, I'm, I feel a little bit of gratitude that we can do that here. And then also that you have to, you have to be patient. Um, you know, you realize more and more how scared people are going into surgery. And it's really easy for us when we're busy to curtail the conversations but the time is important for patients. You're one of our attendings here in the Emory General Surgery Residency Department, and a lot of the attendings that I work with have been trained in the Emory system and then either come back or stayed on. How has your experience been? Um, do you think there are pros and cons to staying at your home institution, and what can we learn from that? And so I think certainly the pros... And I knew this probably, so I'm lucky enough that I was someone that the program liked when I went through residency here because they did want me back. And then when I came back, a lot of people were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt that they may not give a totally new person. I didn't have to start off proving myself the same way. The downside of staying at your home institution is that you're a known entity and you can be taken for granted a little bit. And if there are things about you that people knew about knew about you when you were a resident, they can be held against you when you become faculty. Um, and so, held against sounds like a little bit harsh phrasing, <laughs> but you know, everyone gets stereotyped a little bit. Um, and I was always the kind of resident that was pretty outspoken, uh, pretty business, um, you know, didn't have a hard time standing up for what, I, what I, my opinion was. I think for women, 
that's not always considered a flattering trait. And so I do feel like at times I've been delegitimized by people referring to me as being brusque or bristly uh, in ways they would never refer to a guy who is similarly opinionated and decisive. Um, in fact, I have several male faculty members who speak pretty similarly to me, but they've never been told in the process of advocating for a patient or you know, viewpoint that there was something temperamentally incorrect about them. I've definitely been told that. Um, and I think it would be harder for people to do that at a totally new institution. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to tell people you know pretty well, you know, very familiar things. That was probably a little bit of a downside. What advice do you have for, as someone who believes in standing up for what you think is the right thing, how do you do that and advocate for your patients or whatever the situation is as a female attending and get your point across without being labeled? There's nothing wrong with being decisive and assertive. Um, The thing that is wrong is the people who judge you because you're a woman for being decisive and assertive. So it's really easy, I think, to get frustrated and think you have to change something about yourself. You have to be... I think uh, circumspect and introspective enough to realize when you have faults that you can change but stand strong in the things that you admire in people men and women alike. I admire male faculty who advocate for their patients. I think you know, there's nothing wrong in going to a unit and saying this is really bad care, this patient's about to die. We have to do some really important quick things right now. That may not always sound you know, particularly nice. You don't have to scream it at people. Right. But it's important and it's true and you shouldn't not do it because you're worried that someone later on is going to label you. That can be tough, but you know, having some colleagues that you can go you know, get dinner with and vent about it privately, <laughs> it's always a good thing. So. And we're both in the phase right now that whether it's an interviewer or a parent or a colleague are always asking, where do you see yourself in 10 years, 15 years? And for both of us right now, I think it might be like the dream job that we're trying to get to, like finally having made it. Now that you've quote unquote made it, what are your aspirations for the next, you know, 10, 20 years? Or what, how do your career goals change once you've like made it to the dream job? I guess I would say that the career goals are no longer as important an aspect of my central life. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with my life and my job. If you were to have asked me when I was a medical student uh, or even a resident, um, what would I have thought I'd want my overall life to be, I would have anticipated I'd have kids. The fact that I don't have kids has nothing to do with anything but me. I I would never tell anyone, oh, that was surgery that got in my way. Um, That's all personal stuff. And whether you're a surgeon or not, that's just personal stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with the job. But I do think that There's nothing shameful about taking a relatively early retirement and enjoying life and seeing the world and not feeling like you have to spend every ounce of your life on this career focus. You're not necessarily completely defined by that. So now for some more fun questions. What is something that we don't know about you that might surprise us? Well, I was a little bit of a punk band groupie when I was in high school, and uh, I had some friends who fancied fancied themselves hipsters before they were hipsters. Um, So I I guess no one would actually ever have pegged me as being the kind of person who wore all black and was a groupie of a band (laughs) in high school. Um, But I do remember going, they they came up with a tape called The Odd Project because their first names began with O, D, and D. 
And so they needed to have some people in the background who could cheer them on. And so I'm, I'm on a tape somewhere being their groupie in the background. So. Can you provide us a picture of this? Definitely not. Well, thank you so much. Thank you guys for doing this. This was great. a treat. Likewise. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview.